This is God's word. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were, wa- were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. The word of the Lord. Speak to God. Will you pray with me? God of grace, as we come into this room, we're coming from so many different places, and we don't even know kind of the, the, the vast uh, array of stories and, and what has been involved in each and every one of our lives. Many of us sit here and we can't imagine... Um, we would never imagine some of the things that have gone on and are going on in the lives of those around us. Whether it's utter doubt of all of these claims and we feel like we're losing faith day by day. We once had it. It was vibrant. And we wonder if we could ever believe again. If we can ever see you as a real, warranted part of our life. Others of us, maybe we're, we're still questioning, but we're moving towards you. And we can't believe how real you seem. Some come with suffering this morning. Others come with uh, joy because of thankfulness. And whether it's the deep trials of life that we try to look to you for help and for understanding why is this happening, or whether it's, it's just the time where we sit back and enjoy the good times, the truth is we're all in the same boat in one important way. We're more of a mess than we care to admit to anyone else here. And your scripture says to us that we are more loved and accepted through what you have done in Jesus than we ever imagined. And that you're, you see our messes and the wreckage of our lives and you move towards us in grace, even sometimes as we move away. And so the prayer right now is that you move towards us with your grace in a way that changes us. Would you be with us and meet us right now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just wanted to mention that there is, in the ivory worship guide that you have, there is a contact card that you can tear off and let us know something about you so we can keep you connected to City Life Church or if you have a question or anything about that, uh, it can go on that card. Um, there's pens around. You can take one home if you want. You can use that to fill out the thing. We have a lot of those pens. Um, and if, this, if, you don't have a, if you're thinking, I'm going to go home, I'm so inspired today, I'm going to go ho- home and read the Bible. And, but you don't have one at home. You can take one of those too. No one will bat an eye if you walk out of here with one of these in your hand. That's kind of our policy. If you, if you don't have one, take, take one home and feel free to read it. So I have a, you know, I'm not the most technologically uh, um, involved preacher when, it, when it's up here, but I do have a riveting 
uh, picture for you today. Does anybody know who this is? Oh, you can hardly see it. But still, somebody's going to know who this is. Does anybody know who this is? Sasquatch. Not me. Nobody knows who this is. It's 50 Cent. You were, listen, you were listening to him on the way to church this morning. Come on. So here's, here's 50 Cent. Christmas, vacation, he goes home. And if you know, you remember in December, the East Coast just got slammed with snow, right? And, uh, and so here's 50 Cent in his old neighborhood where he grew up, going door to door. Isn't he a nice guy? He's, he's changing the world one driveway at a time. He's scooping the snow on the neighbor's driveways. Isn't that great? He's just just such a giving person. Um, Actually, it's kind of funny. It's really intriguing to me. What he did is he went on Twitter and he said, you know, here's his, what what the thing about 50 Cent is, he's got this entrepreneurial kind of DNA. He sees piles of snow and he says, this can make money. (laughs) And so he goes on Twitter and he says, I bet anybody can make $1,000 today shoveling snow off driveways. You know, watch. I'll, you know, I'll show you. And so he's tweeting throughout the day his progress. He's going door to door, charging $100 to have 50 cent scoop your, you know, the snow in your driveway. A couple houses in, he, he hires a couple kids. So now he's got a whole business going. By the end of the day, he's got, you know, he's tweeting about it, and he's got, you know, $1,000, which presumably he gives to the kids. Makes $1,000 in a day, and that's nothing, because two weeks later he made $10 million in one day. This is the headline. I'm not kidding. This is the headline. Something for you to emulate. You know, how to get rich quick day at City Life Church. 50 Cent ramps his own stock on Twitter. It's a headline. The Guardian, UK. 50 Cent made $10 million after suggesting to followers on Twitter they pile into a company he had a 12% stake in. After rapper 50 Cent unveiled a brand new... uh, uh, a new brand of headphones bearing his name last week, the former drug dealer whose album Get Rich or Die Trying went multi-platinum. He used Twitter to tell his 3.8 million followers to buy stock in the marketing company, a business he partly owns. H&H Imports has, he says, one of the 15 products this year. If you get in, technically, I'll work for you. Big money, he tweeted. 50 Cent, a.k.a. Curtis Jackson, added that the stock went up from five cents to ten cents in one day. You can double your money right now. Just get in with what you can afford. His followers evidently took his advice, and 9.24 million shares were traded in two days. I think that's a lot. I don't follow uh, trading, but it sounds like a lot to me. Being, Being a financial advisor is not, of course, 50 Cent's first gig. Long before he started out as a Billboard chart topping rapper, he was a teenage crack dealer in Queens, New York. And his first album went sextuple platinum, and his success has, uh, has moved constantly to new industries. He started a record label, G-Note. He started a clothing line, G-Unit Clothing Company, which in 2003 partnered with Reebok. And get this, then in 2005 he made his acting debut in a biopic of his childhood called, unsurprisingly, Get Rich or Die Trying. <laughs> he bought 10% of an energy drink company, when Coca-Cola bought it for $4.1 billion in cash in 2007, 50 Cent brought home more than $400 million. <laughs> so, okay, so maybe he's not changing the world one driveway at a time as much as he's just getting really, really rich. <laughs> um, think about changing the world. Uh, you know, I know 
many of us wish that we could make $400 million in a day or $10 million in a day. I think all of us also have a wish, if we're honest, a wish that our life would have a, a lot more of an external drive towards just giving ourselves away, being a part of something that anyone could look at and admire and say, and we can look at and admire and say, I'm actually, I've finally kind of been freed up and given up on all these other things that cluttered my life, and I'm giving my life away. That's what life's all about. But how do you get there? When the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics say that, are there any 20-year-olds here? 20-year-olds? Anyone? I won't point you out specifically, but there are some 20-year-olds. I know some of you didn't raise your hands. There, listen to these statistics. In terms of percentage that you are likely to volunteer at all, 20-year-olds score the lowest. Sorry, guys. But we should applaud the 20-year-olds who do a lot at City Life Church, because there are a lot of you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want you to feel like I'm beating you up, so we got to cheer for you. 18% chance of volunteering. That's incredibly low. Um, so then they start to go up. Those who are, here's another kind of low category, unfortunately. If you kind of just take the slice of people that are never married, 20%, 20.3%, give you that little extra 0.3, likely to volunteer. Then you jump up to those who are married, 32% likely to volunteer. Hey, these are just the statistics. And then those with children bumps up a little bit more, 34.4% likely to volunteer, which all of this goes to say basically my point is that well over half, the majority of you, of people, will not volunteer towards some kind of cause in 2011. Isn't that depressing? And I find this to be so fascinating. Even when, I, when about five years ago I stood on the street in Midtown with some questionnaires and a clipboard, and it was all about what's going on in Midtown if we're going to start a church. And one of the things that you could see, even on these questionnaires, with these questions about, you know, what do you stand for? What's important to you in life? And then what do you, kind of other questions about what do you do with your time? There was this great incongruity between the, the strong beliefs, really standing for a lot of really good, amazing things, but then the other comments like, from even maybe the same person that say, you know, and what I like about Midtown is, and you hope that they say, all the volunteer opportunities, all the ways to make, and they say, you know, living close to the bars, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or whatever else. I mean, you can see these things within, you can see the incongruity, and all, that's in all of our hearts. This sort of desire, why can't we be? You look at this, did you notice the story? I mean, Jesus, in Luke 8, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, and the next thing that happened is just, bam, his followers, without asking questions, they're gone, they're out, giving themselves away, going from town to town as a part of, I don't know, Jesus' healing mission. How do you get that? And I would propose that it's because there is a resurrection power in Jesus that all of us are confronted with. Each Easter we're confronted with it. And I want to invite you to allow it to do three things in your life. And here's what they are as we look at this passage. First of all, let the evidence persuade you then let the relevancy transform you. And third, let the great reversal include you. Okay, so you have the evidence, relevancy, the great reversal. Let the evidence. Exhibit A. The followers of this great man, Jesus, after he died, within the first century already, they forgot where his grave was. They don't, they didn't, the Jerusalem Tourist Board will tell you they know where it is. But they don't. 
They just immediately lost track of where this guy was buried. Now, when does that happen? Every important person that any movement is a part of, they die prematurely. And that grave is a place to make, you know, pilgrimages, to drop off flowers. You can think of the historical figures that that fits. What was going on with these people? So what we're doing, there's a few of these things each year where you just got to look at the evidence. And if you haven't opened yourself kind of fully to these things, just let it speak to you. Let the evidence speak for itself. Why would people, this huge movement that started immediately after his death, why would they forget where his grave was? The answer that they would say from the beginning was it didn't matter because there was no body. There was no body. Another thing, let's say Exhibit B. First century Jews were absolutely inclined to disbelieve that a person would rise from the dead. You know, it's easy to say, to look back and go, well, these were pre-modern people. You know, it was easy for them to buy the rumor that was spread. You know, they were sad that Jesus was gone, and so this is the rumor that got started, and it was easy to buy because they were just the kind of people back then that believed this sort of myth. Well, there's actually, I mean, that's easy for us to say, and it distances us a little bit from the truth of it, but there's not a scrap of evidence that supports that, and there are tons of evidence that supports that they were just against, you know, vehemently against believing that one individual person could rise from the dead. If you follow this gospel, I want to kind of move past this real quick, but if you follow this gospel all the way to Luke 24 and just looked at the interactions, we started with one of them at the beginning of this service, after the empty tomb, and you read all these puzzling things where they clearly do not believe that this is going to happen. It's not on their radar. It's not in their worldview. You notice the scripture that we read. It said it was as if they were speaking nonsense. The scholar N.T. Wright says this. So this is a first century historian and New Testament scholar. He says it cannot be stressed too strongly that first century Jews were not expecting people to rise from the dead as isolated individuals. There were lots of other messianic and similar movements in the Jewish world, roughly contemporary with Jesus. There were many situations in which a messianic leader died a violent death at the hands of the authorities. This is in your worship guide as well. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. In the Jewish worldview, an individual could not be resurrected in the middle of history, and history just continue going. It was not possible in their worldview. So Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities had only two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that your original leader had been resurrected was not an option, unless, of course, he was. This is the question. I could, go, I could list about three or four other things, and so I'll save some of them for next year, <laughs> for next Easter. But the kinds of things that you just look at, and if you are being honestly, if you're having the intellectual uh, integrity to open up your worldview to evidence, they're the kinds of things that sort of stop you in your track and say, maybe I need to explore this a little bit further. Have you opened yourself up to the resurrection in that kind of a way? Now, secondly, let, so will you let the evidence persuade you? Will you let the relevancy transform you? Who, who on earth were these disciples, these 12 
These 12 guys Jesus sends out with authority to go from village to village. Well, I can guess a few things. Several of them were fishermen. We know that from from when Jesus kind of brought them in. So they're lowly fishermen from remote areas. Peter, when he was watching the trial of Jesus, they marked him as one of Jesus' followers. How? Basically by his accent, his sort of, uh, you know, red state accent. (laughs) Sort of backwoods kind of, hey, you talk funny. Uh, Are you with him? That's how Jesus talks. Um, After the resurrection of Jesus, when the disciples go out and preach and heal post-ascension, at one point, as the history tell, tells it in the book of Acts, at one point the comment about them is this. When the temple officials saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that, what did they take note of? These men had been with Jesus. What you have, you have suddenly these uneducated, probably introverted, socially awkward guys, fishermen, Uh, who had a backwoods accent that marked them to anyone as being unsophisticated. Huh, sounds like people God might use to change the world. You have them going out boldly, taking on all this kind of public attention and pressure, living and acting as if they've been transformed with power. And what is the conclusion, even of the people who weren't a part of their movement? Well, one thing we know, they hung around Jesus for a long time. That's sort of a question. Have you... Have you been around Jesus? Have you hung around Jesus long enough to start to make the kind of a transition that we see even happening as you look at Jairus, the father of this daughter whose his daughter is sick and he finds out she's dead. And he's right in this text as it starts out. There's a very loaded question that's, or a very loaded thing that's said to him. And you see that there's a, there's a transition Jairus needs to make. This is what it says. Um, So a family member comes up and says, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And then you see the the tug on Jairus when Jesus comes back and says, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. So there's this transition that Jairus is basically asked to make. Are are you going to move out of Jesus just being teacher? You know, the kind of teacher you can admire, you can you can look at from a distance, but when life gets hard and when certain things come into your life, there are just some things that the teacher isn't there for, isn't quite comprehensive enough in his authority and his power to deal with. Put it another way, when the disciples went out, and you see in, verse, in 9 verse 6, it says that they went out preaching the good news. Another loaded phrase. With a teacher, you go and you get good advice. With Jesus, you get good news. You get an actual... And this is, the, this is the transition that the disciples have made as they go out village to village. They have seen that in Jesus there is an event that changes the very outlook they have on life. It's like their life is given back to them. They've seen a girl's life given back to her and to her father. And something changes as they confront that reality that Jesus is more than a teacher. Jesus is more than giving good advice. He brings good news of an event that changes your relationship with God. Gives your life back, and so that now you don't have to pursue your identity primarily things through things that don't deliver. Like I am a good daughter or son. I'm the best, you know, in my field. I'm financially uh, prudent. I'm physically attractive. Uh, I can make a thousand dollars in a day shoveling snow. I'm a good parent. All these things we look for our identity. We run after these things. We chase after these things. I'm romantically desirable. I'm good at something unique. 
There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but they won't settle your heart and satisfy you as much as you making the transition to Jesus and seeing him as one who is not just narrowly applicable to your life, but comprehensively life-changing. Will you let that relevant, that comprehensive relevancy hang around him long enough and it begins to change you from the inside out? And then, the great reversal includes you. Will you let the great reversal include you? All these things are happening. Jesus raised dead people. We have several accounts of it in the Gospels that he raises people from the dead. Then he raises from the dead. The Gospels say that when he was on the cross and he died, that I'm not making this up, that people came out of the tombs, like people who were respected and seen as holy, came out of tombs and just started living again. And my brain kind of goes, well, what? that's so strange. How did people deal with that information? And what did they die again? I mean, later? I mean, it just, it's kind of like, what? And those answers aren't given. It's almost as if this was so normal, this kind of great reversal of things in the Christian church, that it's just, yeah, that, well, that happened too. <laughs> people that you knew that were dead just kind of walked out of the tombs and were around again. And then you see in the book of Acts that there's actual names of people listed who were raised from the dead, not by Jesus anymore, but by the apostles, by the disciples, after Jesus was gone. And were given their names, presumably, because, you know, at the time it was written, go, go ask them, go check it out. You can, you know, you can fact check this. What's going on? A great reversal. And the way the, you know, the way the Bible talks about this, if you want to understand it for today, because we don't see always people being healed, kind of in the, the way that this is just painted for us in Scripture. We don't see people rising from the dead like this. You want to understand it for today, for always, there's a great reversal in which in Jesus, and sometimes in this world, you see the first fruits. It's like an agricultural analogy. There's such a good initial crop that you see, and you know this is going to be a great harvest. And in our world, we don't see all the healing. We don't, all the wreckage isn't repaired. And in your life, there are messes that you'll wrestle with you know, the rest of your life. But in Jesus, he rose from the dead. It's a first fruit. It shows us there is a great reversal thing that's happening. The switch has been flipped, and there's no turning it back off. It's happening. With the force, I, I use this, I don't use this lightly. Um, the force of like a tsunami. You, maybe I only use it because we've seen the videos in the last month and a half, and just the shocking inevitability of the waves coming, and there's nothing anyone could do. And now let's just use that positively and say that's exactly what's happening now with the resurrection in this world. You don't always see it. You catch little glimpses if your eyes are open and if God allows you to see it. But it's not wreckage that's in its path. It's healing and restoration and renewal of cities, of communities, of individuals. But everyone who is a part of this in the early church through today didn't just kind of sit there and suddenly the, the tidal wave of renewal comes on them from behind without them looking or knowing. Every once in a while, some miracles like that take place when someone's even running away from God. But for the rest of us, basically it involves opening yourself up. This, is a very, this might be the most difficult part of this message for a lot of us, is that in order to enter into the great reversal and be a part of it yourself, there has to be a point where you open up your pollution, the pollution of your own heart, the wreckage and the mess of your own life up 
to the healing renewal that comes through the resurrected Jesus. And I'm not going to pretend that's easy. I'm not going to pretend that's just, oh, yeah, all right, today I did that. On with the next step. It's something that takes great courage, great integrity, community around you. That's why we emphasize even bring your doubts to, to community pods and be there with other doubters. But once you begin to open that up, this is what you begin to see. People who are getting healed. And then what happens? When you enter into the good news of Jesus, you say, I'm more of a mess than I care to admit, but in Christ I am more loved and accepted than I ever imagined. First part's rough to enter into, but the second part overwhelms you like a tidal wave of grace. And what it does is this. All those ways that you felt, you just couldn't figure out, why do I never, why is my life never kind of flow out in this sort of way? And I see these people over here, yeah, they just give themselves away. Why can't I, why is there this huge gulf between me and that point? And what you see is when you have yourself given back to you, when you know that you have been invited in to be a child of God, then suddenly you're freed up. Suddenly you're not chasing all the things you were chasing before. Suddenly you have been given your life. What else is there to do but to join the tidal wave? And that's exactly what can happen. Um, and a lot of times you can go through life, and a lot of people go through life, and you might not even ever catch a glimpse of the great reversal that's actually happening, the switch that's been flipped, the inevitability of the great renewal and healing that's at work in our world. I've seen tons of glimpses of it. A lot of people, you know, it's possible, and I went a long time totally missing it, even as a saying I'm a Christian. But sometimes even a hardened atheist can't deny that it's there. There's a quote in your worship guide. I'm going to read the extended quote from uh, a guy named Matthew Paris. He writes this, But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one that I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassingly or has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. He describes walk, going from village to village. He says, uh, "The city where we had been working, where uh, we had been working, um, the Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life." They stood tall. The great reversal has begun. Open your eyes. Open yourself to the evidence. Open your heart to the relevancy of Jesus in your life and join the great reversal for yourself. Will you pray with me, please? God of grace, we can't even drum up the motivation sometimes to care about you or to care whether you rose from the dead. So will you use something today to spark 
our own grappling and openness to this so that the truth of it finds its way into the cracks of our hurt and our wounds so that our lives might flow out with your grace so that you might free us up in a way that we finally can say, you know what? I'm living the way I pictured I might be able to live. I'm giving myself away. And I don't have a care in the world because Jesus rose from the dead for me. Help us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.